Hello. I guess uh, I'll start out with um, before I was saved. Well, I was saved at 14. And uh, before I was saved, I was I was confused because I had went to a Catholic school and then I'd also come here. So I was always confused. And it was like two things that really confused me. And I was with purgatory and the saints that they always had at the Catholic church and school. And then I... Uh, I was all, I was really confused when I'd come here and hear something and then go there, and then I uh, I looked it up myself and I answered it for myself. And then uh, here's the verse, Exodus 20 it says, "I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt." Out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the sea, under the earth, under the earth. And uh, I think. That verse helped me with all the saints because when I was at the school, they had a big shrine and uh, they had all these different saints around the shrine. And you'd see all these people come and bow down, pray. And I was like, the, that goes against what I just read. It was almost like a check, checklist because it says, uh, it says anything that is carved. And these were stone pieces of what uh, carved images like why not go pray to the real god instead of trying to pray to something that is nothing just rock and then purgatory that was always confusing uh, if you don't know what that is it was the belief of if you weren't good enough to get to heaven then God would place you in purgatory and you'd wait until you were good enough. Uh, that one that one was really confusing. And uh, I'd always question the priest because he'd always come into the classroom and I'd say, what's purgatory? How come it doesn't say it in the Bible? He'd, he'd give a simple answer like, oh, um, I'll get back to you. Yeah, he never got back to me. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, that would that answered my question in uh, Luke sixteen nineteen. <coughs> says uh, it's the story about the uh, rich man and Lazarus. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was the beggar died 
and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip that maybe he dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So the rich man is in hell. And I guess that says he didn't go to purgatory. So the God, God said, hey, you were rich, but you still got to go to hell. Lazarus went straight to heaven. And that kind of really answered that. That was the answer to my question. So that was the two questions that I always had. And then to sum that all up was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it didn't say, for God... So loved the world that he sent Jesus and the saints. And it didn't say that whoever shall believe in him will go to purgatory, then heaven. It didn't say any of that. And that's when I figured out all that isn't real. The only thing that's real is Jesus. And that if I believe in him, I'll go to heaven and have everlasting life. And then I made that decision when I was uh, 14. I'm 17, so... Still growing in the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Kenny. That was very refreshing. You know, what, what a, it's such a wonderful thing to go through life and to know where to find answers, right? Um, it, nowadays, especially, we, we have uh, the Internet and, and everything has an answer, right? When you, you can type in any question you want and get any answer you want, really. But we're thankful that we have the truth in the Word of God and have a basis, a foundation, assurance in the Word of God. If I want to know something, if I want to know about purgatory, excellent uh, place to go uh, there it, in, in the uh, story of the rich man and Lazarus. And another verse that came to my mind, Kenny, was uh, in in Hebrews where the the writer says, uh, speaking about uh, the Lord Jesus, God's son, he says, uh, break in verse three, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the uh, word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. That's the only purgatory, really. He purged our sins, right? We can't purge it. I think that's the idea, if I understand it correctly, behind the religious concept of purgatory, that somehow my uh, uh, my payment in this place will somehow uh, uh, provide uh, me an entrance into heaven. But the Bible clearly says that, that God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, when He had by Himself... Not, not you, not me, not anybody else. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So thank the Lord, uh, Kenny, for those struggles that you had. And, and all of us right, can a- a- acknowledge in our own lives that there's struggles that we have 
but we can find the answer in the Word of God. Praise the Lord for the truth of Scripture. Okay, Andrew's going to come up and share. And uh, maybe uh, when you're finished, Andrew, maybe you would, uh, unless there's any other comment or question, maybe uh, Andrew would close and off in a word of prayer. Good evening. I've always found it interesting about the idea of purgatory um, not being good enough, as if there's a scale of how good we are, rather than absolutely filthy or simply justified by Christ. So that alone uh, should, should tip us off to the fact that uh, there's something man-made behind that idea uh, of being good enough or not good enough. Well, I was raised not in a Catholic home, but in a Baptist home. So my parents were Bible-believing Christians. Uh, I was homeschooled all the way up to college. So all through high school, birth to 18, I was at home. I was very, uh, the term I use uh, as a child, of course, was sheltered. I'm sure they would have said protected. Uh, Kind of, you know, kept from... Uh, the things that all my friends were getting familiar with or getting to know. Uh, And I wasn't even uh, introduced to any of the the things of the world, for the most part, until I was about uh, 13 or 14, probably. So all these things that, you know, kids in in public schools or with access to Internet, because, I mean, we had dial up and... I was allowed like 10 minutes of supervised internet per day type thing. Um, So all these things were this brand new world to me when I started finally making friends and spending time with my friends outside of my house. All these these wild new things that I'd never experienced before. I'm not sure of exactly when I professed my faith in Christ, but it was a very young age, probably four or five. I think I was baptized when I was nine. I got baptized uh, with my sister uh, in Lakeland. Not at the same time, but one after the other. And as I got a little older, 12, 13, started getting familiar with the world, had some friends that were not raised in Christian homes, and even my friends that were raised in Christian homes weren't always the best influences. But I started to become very anxious, just like as an attribute. I worried a lot. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly the root of that anxiety was, but between the ages of 11 and 15, I actually struggled with like panic attacks and, and fear that I really don't know where this came from at all, but that my parents were going to leave. And so even I remember when I was young, going down the street to my neighbor's house and every 30 or 40 minutes peeking out the window down at my house to make sure all the vehicles were still there. So I had this really, I don't know where it came from, well, besides obviously you know, the father of lies, but this anxiety that grew uh, for years and years And I think the way I coped with that of my own strength, or I tried to, 
um, turned it from anxiety into anger. So I became a very short-tempered, angry young man. As I got to know more of the world, that anger shifted back towards my parents who'd kept me boxed in. And I, I used to beg to, you know, go to high school and I wanted to hang out with my friends and be in public school and they wouldn't let me and so I just got angrier and angrier and I continued to uh, just be a short-tempered angry little man my mom got a job at a local Christian university it was a Pentecostal university Um, she started working there when I was about 15 So by the time I was 18, I was fortunate enough to have my tuition covered as a benefit to her employment. So I started attending this Christian university, still a fairly angry young man. I attended church on a regular basis, did the church thing, but there was no interest or growth, you know, in my, in my spiritual walk. So as I got further and further into school, I was studying psychology. My dad, uh, when he was younger, had wanted to be a counselor. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I figured I'd study psychology and get into counseling, just to have a profession to pursue. And since it was a Christian university, regardless of your degree, they required... A, a religion core, they called it. So about five or six classes that everyone had to take, you know, uh, intro to Bible, hermeneutics, just some basic biblical courses. And spending those hours in those religion courses brought me some conviction, kind of wondering what I was doing with my life, um, you know, why I wasn't growing, why I didn't feel the presence of God. And that's a very big point uh, in the Pentecostal uh, realm, is feeling and experience and um, charisma. So that was particularly pointed out to me as I was influenced by uh, these these people. Uh, And so I had even more questions and concerns about why I never felt the presence of God. And so halfway through school, I switched from majoring in psychology to majoring in theology. Sort of just because I wanted answers. It's what I wanted to study. I wanted to know why I called myself a Christian. Was it just because my parents had raised me that way? Which, at this point, I was still angry enough that that was a good reason to not call myself a Christian. Just because they made me do it. There were a few different professors in college that really spent some time with me outside of class and really made themselves available to me. And one of them in particular, Dr. Davis, uh, he was an uh, apologetics professor, the defense of the faith, the rational defense of the faith. And I took a few classes with him that I were required, and I also took a few elective classes with him and really got to this point where Christianity made sense to, to me apart from what my parents had taught me and apart from you know my upbringing. And so I was still left with this problem of wondering why I didn't feel 
like a Christian or feel God. And I remember at my old church, one of my friends was giving his testimony. And he said that he didn't feel God. And he wondered why that was so. And he pointed out that if God writes this huge letter to us, this big communication, and we ignore it, and we never pray to Him, and we're not interested in Him, why we would expect Him to, to give us warm fuzzies, right? Why would He be giving us good feelings if we're totally ignoring Him? If we have the Word of God and we have this prayer and we're not doing either of them, why God would be giving us comfort and peace. So about halfway through school, maybe three years in, I started doing my best to make it a daily priority to be in the Word and to be in prayer. I'm not sure. I still don't know exactly when I truly received salvation. Um, One of my struggles throughout... um, my growth was not only that anger that I mentioned, but also doubt. And I think that comes from that anxiety that I used to feel. We, uh, Megan and I were at a, an open mic, uh, kind of a poetry, music thing, uh, last night. And one of these artists mentioned in his poem, uh, he painted this picture of, at birth, being surrounded by demons that begin keeping a list of your shortcomings and remembering what your weaknesses are. And so, this recurring doubt of my salvation or wondering, you know, being anxious and wondering, you know, have I understood? Have I repented? Sometimes that's an important call from the Holy Spirit and sometimes that is a lie to stagnate, to paralyze you, to keep you from moving forward. And so as I continued to study and pray, there's been a few things that the Lord has taught me about a few different areas that I struggle with, that I, that I struggled even more with, and I continue. These are my shortcomings. So not only to testify of Uh, of God's grace and mercy in my life, but to testify of the sanctification that He teaches us. Uh, There are just a few scriptures that I wanted to go through about the various areas that God's been teaching me throughout the years, and even recently in in particular, about my shortcomings. With anger, I think the root of anger is wanting to be... Uh, wanting fairness, right? what we think is fair. Wanting to get even. And so I used to think of this verse, Romans twelve nineteen. Some of you very likely know that verse right offhand. Romans twelve nineteen. I would be angry with people I wanted to, whether in their, to their face or privately, tell them why they were wrong, why I was right, why they had you know, acted incorrectly to me. 
And Romans 12:19 says, "Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath, for it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay." So I thought, great. God's going to get him back for offending me. And that's kind of how I always took that verse, this great angry verse like, I'm not going to get you back because God's going to get you back. As though God was going to punish them and say, this is for Andrew. But when God says vengeance is mine, he's not saying it's for me to take on your behalf. Vengeance is God's because of the offense that everyone has committed against God. Ezekiel 25:17 says I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Why? Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. So that verse suddenly told me that God's vengeance isn't to get people back for me. God's vengeance is a tool that he uses to glorify himself. And so my anger wasn't something that I needed to hand off and let God take care of, but my anger was something that I when this when this verse in Romans said, "Never avenge yourselves," the idea is to never have the desire to avenge yourself. With all of my doubts that I felt, I used to wonder, uh, what if my doctrines were wrong? All these things that I've been taught, because again, I was brought up in this certain path of belief. What if my doctrines are wrong? What if I never deeply, or what if I never understood deeply enough? What if I think I understand Christ's substitutionary death, but I don't? Why do I still sin? What can I do differently? And as I continued to wrestle with those issues, God provided answers over time. With my fear of my doctrines being wrong, I think we're all going to learn a lot of things when we stand before God. I don't think our we're going to have a perfect doctrine. So there's no matter of that my salvation hanging on my doctrine. My fear of never understanding deeply enough, God told me that I obviously never will. There's no way I could ever understand the depth of Christ's sacrifice. And why do I still sin? Particularly, uh, one class I took in... uh, school again. We went through Romans. The whole class just on Romans. Three hours a week. And the idea that I that God showed me in that class was that sanctification is not equal to glorification. So why do I still sin? Because I'm not yet glorified. I'm on this process, this path of sanctification. And I have a part in my sanctification. And then all in all, that boiled down to this idea of what could I do 
And that's the whole crux of Christianity. Nothing. There's nothing I can do. I can't. And so this total helplessness is what I call my flavor of salvation. Because I think the truth of the gospel and salvation is obviously, it's objective. There's one truth, there's one way. But I think the finer details of the gospel, and that's why testimonies are so powerful, because God presents the gospel and truth to different people in different ways. Always through Christ, and always through through faith and His atonement. But for me, a better grasp on salvation came from realizing my helplessness in particular. And so the more I spent years and years struggling with what I could do to feel and what I could do to... Uh, all the things that me, 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 what can I do, do, do? And then finally realizing that I am totally helpless and I have to relinquish control entirely. Uh, again, I'm in thinking about school now a lot, so I keep using examples that I heard in school. But in another class we were talking about what it is to have faith and to to trust in God. And we had the example of a chair. When you go to sit in a chair, or rather, when you go to be embraced by salvation, you just sit in the chair. You don't clutch onto supports and carefully lower yourself into the chair. You just sit in the chair. You stop doing things to support yourself. You let the chair take you. And all, all, a lot of years I spent trying to support myself through my salvation. Not necessarily by good works, but by understanding and making sure that, you know, my checklist, if you would, of salvation. But finally realizing my total helplessness to have any part in my salvation besides accepting what Christ did for me. And so, that's... That's my testimony in, in a nutshell, is realizing just how helpless I was uh, and spending all those years and looking back now and seeing how uh, God took me through different situations to match uh, each one of my shortcomings specifically and brought people into my life in situations uh, to teach me those things. And so now uh, that path of sanctification is something that we're all on, right? We're all at different points on that path. And we're all helpless in our salvation. So I encourage you tonight uh, to stay seeking after God, to stay in the Word, and to stay in prayer so that He can continue to teach you, to show you things in the Word about your shortcomings. Because we all have a different set of shortcomings. We probably share a lot of them, but again, everybody's got their own set of shortcomings. So just to stay seeking after God and to stay aware of how helpless we are to do, right? It's not what we do, it's what Christ did. So that's that. So let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you've given us. We think about this idea of helplessness and it's not only our salvation, it's our very heartbeat that we are helpless to control. And we thank you for sustaining that, for giving us each breath, 
in each day. And I pray that we would seize each day and use it as an opportunity to be made more like you, to be sanctified and to learn more about you. And we thank you for Christ, for that final sacrifice that we couldn't make, we couldn't pay for. Help us to live every moment in light of that perfect blood. Help us to have a sense of urgency about sharing that, not just to keep it for ourselves. Protect us as we go. Bless us with your Holy Spirit to be, to see things the way you do, to act the way you would. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.